welcome to the Farming on Purpose podcast. Today's challenges in agriculture are new, but the grit and determination required to be successful have been handed down for generations. On the Farming on Purpose podcast, we preserve the ag heritage and traditions we built our identity on while pursuing the American dream of multi-generation farms that innovate for the future. Listen along as we share stories of how farmers and ranchers are building legacies, both in their business and their character, for the sake of those they'll pass the reins to. I'm your host, Lexi Wright, and I'm excited to talk with you about the financial, generational, and production challenges facing producers in the ag industry today. This podcast is brought to you by Back Pocket Social Marketing. And yes, this is Lexi here. This podcast has been a real passion project for me. All the time that goes into interviewing guests, editing, and producing the show is sponsored by my freelance marketing agency. We specialize in website design, social media advertising, content creation and management, and email marketing. If you like to take a foundational approach to your marketing and figure out exactly what's working for you and what's not, and really focus on efficiency, then you would be a great candidate to work with us. You can reach out and talk with us more at Lexi at BackPocketSocial.com. We would love to help you solve your marketing challenges. Welcome back to Farming on Purpose. I am so excited today to have Haley Edwards, an Alaskan who is here to join me and talk about the food system and agriculture and farming in Alaska, um, which very unique perspective that I don't know a lot about, and I'm sure a lot of my listeners don't know a lot about. So really looking forward to hearing your story today, Haley. Do you want to go ahead and introduce yourself? Tell us a little bit about you, um, your ag background, and what you do there. Sure. Thanks for having me on. I am super excited to be here. This is my first podcast, so that's exciting. Um, Yep, I'm Haley Edwards. I'm 25 years old. Uh, I am a first-generation Alaskan in my family. Uh, My parents were born and raised in Michigan, and uh, shortly after they were married and after my oldest sister was born, they moved to Wyoming to help run a boys' home with my uncle. Uh, They did kind of some, I guess, ranch-type stuff there. Uh, My dad was born and raised on a dairy farm for a number of years, and then eventually his dad moved on to, like, uh, delivering dairy, uh, dairy products. And so in 1989, uh, they had three kids by now, my older, my oldest and only brother and my other sister, and they decided to move to Alaska. Uh, an opportunity opened up a lady who owned the property that we live on now uh, really liked the ministry of the boys home and so offered that property and by that time the farm itself had gone through a number of different hands and they um the original people still owned it it returned back to their ownership And so that first year my parents moved here, they didn't have any electric, no water. Uh, They had to haul water um, and the house was marked as condemned. (laughs) So uh, after a number of years, uh, they decided to start a dairy here. And by that point, the boys home was gone. Uh, They dairied for, I think about 10 years, roughly. And then in two, roughly in 2000, 2002, uh, all the dairies in the state went out of business. Uh, there was only a few left and they didn't really know what to do. 
uh, there was a lot of uncertainty and they just prayed that the Lord would, they knew the Lord would provide for them, but they were hoping it would be a little quicker than expected. And so an opportunity did come up. Uh, they pursued jobs outside of farming. They still farmed a little bit here, kept a couple of dairy and beef cows and just, it was mainly farming just for your, our own benefit. Uh, so COVID hit and like many people, um, it affected Alaska, especially hard. And so we saw the opportunity to start doing direct to consumer beef, started making the cows actually work for us. And by then we have mostly beef influence areas pretty much been bred out. But, um, now I live on the farm with my husband, um, and we own a towing company and along with the direct-to-consumer business i also do uh, artificial insemination for cattle and that's been a pretty interesting opportunity there so i think that pretty much covers it wow yeah so many follow-up questions to that um okay so how old were you when they moved to alaska i wasn't born yet born yet okay so you were actually born in alaska yeah oh wow okay um, wow, really cool opportunity that they got to go there. How did they make that decision? Because that's a huge change from, I guess, Michigan and then Wyoming. And I don't know what part of Alaska you guys are in. Is it a very remote part or I know there's a lot of variation there. So remote has some different different definitions to some people. If, if you watch any of the reality shows, um, remote to a lot of those people is 20 minutes closer to Walmart than I am. So <laughs> we would be considered in the bush. We're about 20 miles out of town. We're 100 miles from the nearest Walmart in the opposite direction, like I said. Uh, we are located in Delta Junction. That is at the end of the Alcan Highway. So we do get a lot of traffic, uh, truck traffic coming through there. And we are on, we're, we're on the Alaska road system of um yeah, we only have a couple roads in Alaska, and it all goes in a big loop. Um, so my parents' decision came, uh, they had always really wanted to come to Alaska. It was a dream of theirs, and when the opportunity came up, they were like, let's go. Uh, but they have said before, if they could have afforded to move back that first year, they would have. Uh, they made only $7,000, which back then is still better than seven, goes farther than $7,000 now, but that's also in a year. Yeah. So they were getting by on, I think dad was doing trucking jobs and uh, I'm not sure what mom was doing, but they were, they were doing everything they could to scrape by. Wow. And then talk more about why all the dairies went out of business in, you said, 2002? It was 2000 or 2002. I need to get the actual date on that. So at the time, the state of Alaska owned and ran and adopt, uh, owned and operated their own dairy. Um, what my parents found doing a dairy here. So there is a couple of dairies here and the biggest one was the Northern Lights dairy. Uh, the problem was if you couldn't bottle your own milk, then you weren't able to really make any money. Like that cost was eating up too much. Um, what they found was they couldn't afford the bottling equipment and the Northern Lights dairy, um, it was a situation that a lot of local dairies in Delta were doing. The state run dairy was in Palmer. 
it was, I think it was in Palmer, Wasilla area. And what the plan had been was we would send our milk down there and gain a little bit, some gain some of the profits back. Well, the governor at the time, Sarah Palin, uh, basically there was a big miscommunication and the normal manager was gone or on vacation. For some reason, he wasn't at the dairy. And so the person in charge that day, she, Palin came to do a tour or an inspection or something and the people wouldn't let her in. When the governor says, like, like, let me in, (laughs) let them in. Well, they didn't. And she threw, she shut the dairy down over that. And so that kibosh, that collapsed a lot of dairies in the state, um, except for Northern Lights Dairy. And I think one or two others. But as of five or six years ago, we really didn't have any cattle dairies. There's a goat dairy on Kodiak, but that's you know that's the uh, kodiak is isolated you know they're not really supplying to the whole state um so that's why all the dairies went out of business wow it's crazy when you think about how big of an impact small things like that can have on the entire mm-hmm. so are milk products pretty challenging to come by there is the price high or what's that look like so we get most of our milk products from out of state. Typically, they get to Seattle and then they are barged up. Um, yeah, they're barged from Seattle to Anchorage and then they're trucked from there. We do get food products on truck. Um but I'm sure, as you can imagine, that is still a very fragile system. If there's a storm in the Gulf, then you're not getting your food when you want it. Mm-hmm. If there's a storm coming through Canada, because we have to come through Canada, that's a long trip. If a truck breaks down or the border shuts down or Canada shuts everything down, then that makes things a lot more tenuous. So as far as the cost of dairy products, out-of-state dairy products is, I wouldn't say cheap, but it's actually cheaper than local stuff. Okay. It's typically not fresh. I believe there's some repasteurization going on just to make sure everything gets killed. Gotcha. So it's safe. It's just not super fresh. Okay. But with, again, I, I hate that I keep coming back to the pandemic, but the pandemic really changed a lot of people's minds and changed a lot of people's perspective. And I know that's true for the lower 48 as well. <laughs> Suddenly a lot more people were able to cut out the middleman and just be direct to consumer. So currently we do have, there is a dairy uh, in Delta, uh, the Plagerman family, they run the Alaska Range Dairy. Uh, they do white milk and chocolate milk and a couple of other dairy products. And a lot of people have really jumped on board in supporting them. To buy a gallon, it's about $10 a gallon. Yeah. Now, once you get off the road system and you start getting into these more remote areas, that goes up even for out-of-state products, like significantly, you know, $16, $17 a gallon. And in the lower 48, that would be probably astronomical mm-hmm. but when you consider that once you get off the road system you have to fly things 
everywhere and it gets really difficult. Yeah, for perspective, I'm in Kansas and we buy buy our mark. Wow, we buy our milk from the Kroger brand store and milk there is generally like 3.40 a gallon. And it's a lot fresher, isn't it? Probably. Yeah. Um, so that's really amazing to hear just how that is so different. In pers- We're kind of jumping into the next topic here, but in comparison to other items on the shelves in grocery stores, is that like a super high cost? Would you say that's one of the highest priced items? What is the What are some of the other items in the grocery store selling for? That's a really good question. Uh, We'll take meat, for example. Meat, um, well, meat's a bit hard because now it's it's more expensive everywhere. But I guess for, um, well, recently we bought a pack of like choice choice or select ribeyes. It definitely, it wasn't prime. Um, It was... It was about $80 for four ribeyes, which that might not. The problem is I, so I am very privileged to say that I've never had to purchase beef. Uh, we've always had our beef, so that's a little bit hard for me. But yeah, uh, restaurant beef, uh, you're getting a, <sighs> there's one in particular. Uh, you can get a ribeye that's like 40% actually meat and 60% fat, and that's going to cost you almost $40. Okay. And that's not like even marbling. That's just like back fat. It's restaurant food is very, very expensive. Um, oh, shoot. I'm trying to think of grocery store prices right now. Uh, well, I guess the only comparison I can say is when we come to the lower 48 and everything is like a do- like fruits, like a dollar, it's like, oh my gosh, it's so cheap. Like I can actually buy a meal, like a meal's worth of food and not go over $50. Mm-hmm. It's crazy to think about to me. So when you guys go to the grocery store, how often are you going? What kind of items are you generally picking up? Um, and then what kind of things are you trying to find alternative sources for or do yourselves? So typically we will go to the grocery store about once a week. Uh, We will go to Fairbanks because my town just does right now. We don't have a grocery store. It caved in due to snow. Um, But even prior to that, we were still going, we were still traveling a hundred miles to go to the grocery store. Uh, Typically we might look at buying some steaks just because we haven't had beef in the freezer. Um, not every week, but it'll be like once or twice a month. We'll try to get steaks. Uh, we go through a lot of potatoes. Uh, we go through, uh, we go through avocados. You can imagine those are, can be hard to come by. Um, fruit, bananas, oranges, uh, broccoli, lettuce. I forgot what vegetables were. Um, onions, garlic, I guess kind of like your typical um, grocery store list. Um, we do here what you so because I find that with people I talk to, it's so different for everyone. Even things that you think like, oh, everybody buys that. It's like no, yeah, no, it's it's so different from person to person. 
And typically, we haven't been able to get a garden in the last couple of years, but we would try, you know, previously, like, grow our own potatoes, broccoli, cauliflower, beans, peas, the whole nine yard. And, okay, now I'm starting to remember what we buy. Uh, We end up buying a lot of frozen food. Mm. A lot of frozen peas, a lot of frozen corn. We get so excited when we come to lower 48 and we can actually get fresh, sweet corn on, like on the cob. That is, yeah, we're ridiculous when we go out of state because we're like oohing and aahing at everything that's available. Yeah. Fresh and cheap. We get, we get ridiculously excited just because we don't, we can't get that up here. Yeah. I don't blame you. Like a little vacation to the gro- a different grocery store. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Wow. So you mentioned some of the things that you guys try to grow. Um, What's your growing season like? Are you using a lot of like row cover, high tunnel type situations? Or are you just growing outdoors? What's that look like? Uh, Well, before our high tunnel greenhouse collapsed, (laughs) um, we were doing some high tunnel gardening and we also would do outside gardening. Uh, Inside the high tunnel, we would do tomatoes and celery uh, peppers we did try corn one year it didn't work out super well Uh, the problem is we have a very short growing season so right now as of a couple weeks ago we started finally getting rid of the snow and it was in the 40s and it's still we're, we're picking up to the 70s now but everything's not green yet we're not getting a ton of moisture as of right now so on a good year we have between june and mid to late august september if we have a really really good warm year the other problem is there's like with everybody you need a good balanced amount of dryness and then rain alaska tends to be an all or nothing kind of girl uh, we'll get either a dry, dry, dry June, and then it rains for the other two months, mm-hmm. or we get a really wet June, July, rains for two months. There's only been a couple of years in my recollection that we've been really balanced and we've had really good hay years. Wow. That is when you get very challenging then if you're only getting about three months, mm-hmm. squeeze all that in. Wow. Um, okay, so that's kind of the like home food growing thing. What about agriculture from a bigger picture? What's that look like in Alaska? What kind of crops? What's the breakdown of just livestock crops? Tell us everything because I don't know. So a lot of people, when they think about like agriculture in Alaska, they think about the pictures they've seen from the Alaska State Fair in Palmer of these massive pumpkins that are like six, seven, eight hundred pounds. Uh, you got to look it up. It's pretty cool. Uh, and that's, I guess, to kind of reel it back a little bit. The thing about Alaska is there are so many different climates. Delta to Palmer is completely different than they're completely different from each other. Uh, Palmer to Homer, which is the furthest, which is the farthest south you can go on the Alaska road system, also completely different from Palmer. Even like Homer to Valdez, which they're both along the coast. They're completely different from each other. So there's a lot of nuance. It's not just you can 
paint it all with a blank paint it all with the same brush which is true for a lot of places texas i know west texas to east texas it's a lot different so in delta delta is the primary grain grower Uh, we are well known for that a lot of people in alaska will get their barley um will get their barley here and they will get a lot of brome hay we alfalfa can be grown but it is in very specific places and i don't believe anybody in delta has successfully grown it on a large scale so brome hay is god's gift to alaska cows and horses can get fat on it so that's a good thing um that's and then you do get a lot of beef cows here in delta um we do have a meat processor here but they are always busy uh, and they are busy with a lot of game meat um so that's kind of the delta area fairbanks which is 100 miles north of us you're going to get some kind of a hodgepodge of different things you got crops you got vegetables you've got beef um not very large scale beef compared to delta but that's kind of like you'd get kind of a mix of things and then palmer wasilla palmer wasilla is i would say one of the agricultural hubs in alaska you're that's where you're going to get a lot of your vegetables vegetables and whatnot because they are a more temperate climate than we are up in delta um in delta we have the coldest winters and the hottest summers Mm -hmm. so we'll go from 50 below in the winter to 90 above in the summer very very high difference and then palmer wasilla you get more of a mid just more temperate and then homer they really don't get very cold in the winter um it might be 30 degrees on a bad day but they they're they're on the coast so they're getting that uh you know they're getting that ocean breeze keeping everything pretty moderate okay so, and then there's obviously, like you mentioned, game is a big contributor um, as a food source. And then fishing, right? On the coast more? Okay. Yes. Yep. There is a lot of fishing on the coast. Strangely enough, and I haven't figured out why this is true, uh, fish being sold in Alaska is a lot more expensive than it is out of state. Really? It's insane. Yeah. And king crab, too. So much cheaper for everybody else than it is for Alaska. I don't know why. Um, Halibut isn't too bad, but it's still, yeah, everything is more expensive in Alaska, even our own stuff. So I don't know why. That's interesting. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of the agriculture landscape. And then again, good to know that it varies so much just from location i didn't know it got that warm anywhere in alaska that up to 90 in the summer that's amazing a lot a lot of people don't and then you go further north and it and it changes again um one thing i do want to mention is and again this is true for any state in the lower 48 the state of alaska hasn't really been very agriculturally minded if that makes sense um there's been comments made by some legislators that in the past that like well agriculture doesn't really matter we get all of it from lower 48 it's okay um 
So there hasn't that we we really don't have a lot of infrastructure to support agriculture. We're trying to change that. But when you don't, I'm not somebody who wants to rely totally on the state, but there are things that have to be done that the state has to do to help support and create infrastructure. Yeah. Um, so that's felt, felt, yeah, felt like that was important to mention is that there's just, it ha- it's changing now that, you know, people realize, wow, this is really going to suck if 95% of our food supply gets cut off and we are in big, big trouble. Um, it's, but it's kind of a matter of, they don't really know what to do yet. They're just kind of throwing money at different projects and whatnot, hoping something will stick and they don't quite know how to really support and encourage agriculture. That's going to make an impact. You can throw money at lots of things. It doesn't mean that it's going to, going to actually help. What are some of the pieces of the infrastructure that are really missing or need invested in to grow that local system? Uh, for one thing, our road system. So like I said, our road system kind of goes in a great big loop. There's the Richardson, which goes from Fairbanks to Valdez. And then there's the Glen Highway, which goes from Glen Allen to Palmer Wasilla. And you can get, so Delta, Glen Allen, Palmer. And then there's the Parks Highway, Fairbanks, Wasilla. And then... I think it's a Sterling Hockey from Anchorage to, yeah, Anchorage to Homer, I believe. So it goes in a great big loop and then two ro- two spikes that go southward. Okay. Uh, those ro- The roads are terrible. I know everybody says their roads are horrible, but our, if one road shuts down, you don't have many other options. It's not like you can just block off a lane of traffic or you go a different route, you go around a town, you're kind of stuck. So there's, and and winter maintenance isn't great, you know, and especially for rural towns like Delta, the only way to a hospital is over the Richardson. And there were several times this winter, it was just completely shut down. You couldn't get past it. And if somebody has to go to the hospital, they're out of luck. Mm. So that's one thing. Another thing is, excuse me, uh, meat processor plants. There's There's been a number of them in the state that have tried to be successful and they just haven't for one reason or another either they just didn't have the knowledge to keep it going or they couldn't get along with their customers and nobody wanted to go to them or they had too many violations whatever the only one that has managed to stay the course and create a really really great client base and a really great reputation is delta meat and sausage in in my town um they're great but there's other things with that. So if you, if, okay, so we wanted to sell our meat directly to the grocery stores. In order for that to happen, it has to be USDA inspected and you have to have your own labels and they do USDA inspection, but they, as of right now, they don't do the labels. So you're kind of limited on what you can do there. 
So, I mean, I mean, imagining you have one decent meat processor in the state that everybody trusts, that's really hard to, how do I want to say this? You're not left with a lot of options because it's still expensive to bring your cows up here. And like I said, they're busy. They, I mean, they are the, some of the hardest working people I've ever met and they are so busy, so, so busy. So meat processing is another infrastructure problem. Um, on the vegetable side, I'm not familiar enough with selling vegetables. Most people can just get away with selling it directly um, from their little farm stand. Um, it's not quite as big an issue with as it is with the meat selling. So I'm not sure. I, I think some of it has to do with just volume. You know, like Fred Myers and Walmart, they need they need a consistent volume of fruits, vegetables, and meat in order to keep their shelves full. There is nobody in Alaska that has that kind of volume to supply. And, and like I said, when you have roughly three months you got to be working your butt off and you have to have a lot of land. Mm-hmm. And that's the other thing, not a lot of, and that's, that, that'll be another thing I'll get into, but not a lot of farmers have a lot of land. They don't have hundreds of acres to dedicate to, to vegetables. Um, and I, and the land part, that's another thing. When you look at the statistics, private Alaskan citizens own less than 1% of all private land. Now, I had, okay, how many square miles does Alaska have? Okay, I'll, I'll find that in a little bit. Um, 60% of all land in Alaska is owned by the federal government. Roughly 35% is owned by the state of Alaska. And then roughly 13% is owned by the Alaska natives. Okay. So when you when you consider like less than one percent, that's that's tiny, and less than one percent of Alaska is developed by by humans. There's there's lots of villages, lots of that, but overall, there really is a lot of Alaska has not been touched. Mm-hmm. So that kind of feeds into the whole into the whole infrastructure thing yeah. and not that i wanted to become california where it's you know just a desert wasteland but there's a lot more we could be doing with what we have and it's just not being it's just it's not being used not being released not being utilized it's just staying it's just staying wilderness interesting so the with the government holding a lot of the land, are there like petitions from citizens to utilize that land or is it just kind of an ongoing battle? What's that situation look like? So that is starting to change. Um, Last year, the state of Alaska developed cleared land in Nanana. It's called the Nanana Farm Project, and they are trying to sell it, again, to encourage agriculture. I think it's just a matter of you don't have a lot of people signing up to be farmers up here. Mm-hmm. So there wasn't, it's like, well, at the time, it's like, yeah, who, who really cares? 
There's also a lot of swamp in Alaska. Nobody will tell you that. But there is a lot of swamp in Alaska. You have enough mosquitoes to, t- to, to prove that. I would never have guessed that. That's crazy. Much of Alaska, I think, is portrayed by reality TV shows, which I'm guilty. I love them. I will watch all of them. Um, mm-hmm. How realistic are those? Is that this kind of a side note? But what is the locals' perspective of those kinds of shows? That is pretty silly. It's very silly. It's it's very very silly, uh, and too kind of boring. Like we have, there's so many other interesting things about Alaska besides just who oh, we're homesteading in in the wilderness. Guess what? I don't want a homestead. I I don't like gar- I don't I can't garden to save my life. And and that's great that other people do, and I admire them. But there's so much more to Alaska than just wilderness survival. You know, and and like everything, the producers want drama. The producers want, you know, excitement. And but I could probably Google how many survival wilderness homestead shows are there in Alaska. And I probably come up with at least 20. So, okay, we're beating a dead horse here. Yeah. (laughs) Move on to something different. (laughs) So what is something about Alaska that you wish was more portrayed or that you wish more people knew about? That's a really good question. Um, I think the rich history, you know, outside of just the wilderness, the people who worked to make Alaska, who tamed Alaska, who built cities and worked to, you know, if you look at the pilots of Alaska, that's really interesting. They were going through dangerous conditions and taking supplies out to villages and whatnot. So, and, you know, the heyday of Anchorage during the pipeline days, like Alaskans know very well about the pipeline days back in the 70s, but I don't think most people outside of that understand that, you know, that was our economic gold or, you know, our gold rush in a lot of ways. So I think just going beyond the survival, again, the survival homesteading thing, like let's let's cut to a different layer, you know, let's talk. Yeah. Makes sense. If you own a business and have ever wondered if social media ads could work for you, but didn't know where to start, worried it would drain your marketing budget, or simply couldn't deal with Facebook's complicated meta business suite tools, then this might just be for you. I've been running social media advertisements for local and growing businesses and organizations for 10 years now, and always hate to hear when business owners have a negative experience with social media ads or boosted a post and felt like they wasted their money. So we are creating a way for you to take social media ads for a test drive for your business. This test is designed to see if social media ads can help grow your business, get quality leads, increase foot traffic, or increase sales for your business specifically. If you're curious, learn more on my website at lexiwrightconsulting.com backslash social and click on social media ads test drive. Test drive spots are available until June 2nd. And once they're gone, they're gone until we offer this service again. Makes sense. Um, Okay, so kind of circling back to your family's story and having a dairy there in Alaska and then transitioning into a beef herd. Tell us about what that has looked like and where you guys are at now in that process. 
So what that looked like, uh, we, after we sold off most of the dairy cows, we kept a couple for our own consumption. Uh, Mom and dad were able to rent a bull from a local, um, local beef producer here. And we started bringing in like Galloway Angus influence. Galloway are shaggy haired, but not quite like the Highlands, but they also grow really well. And I don't think there was ever, I don't think there was ever really an intent to get into the beef business because again, eh, most people just got it from the grocery store. And I was like, yeah, we'll just, we like, we like having cows. We'll just keep our own, our own stuff. So like again, 2020 hit. And in 2021, I felt the Lord putting on my heart, like, Hey, let's build something here. Let's, let's put these cows to work because hay is not getting cheaper. Nothing's getting cheaper. And there, we were also having a lot of people ask us like, Hey, do you have beef for sale? We're like, uh, not yet. Um, so that's, I spent about a year just researching, looking at all the different angles, thinking about different ways, different feeds we can use. Um, one helpful fact about Alaska is we are the top beer shrink, beer drinking state in the nation. Really? I'm sure. Yeah. Dark. Oh yeah. Nine months of darkness, you know? Uh, and as such, Fairbanks has more breweries than I would ever think could be supported, but they are all thriving. In Delta, we have one brewery and what and you know the waste product that comes from breweries is spent grain which is barley that they they take malt barley and then i think they squeeze all the sugars out of it it it's wet um so i emailed them one day and said hey i would love to take your spent grain off your hands if you have it i would be happy to buy it and Five minutes later, I get a phone call from the owner and he's like, please take our spent grain. Also, if you have beef and he went into this whole plan, like he wants to build his own butcher shop and he wants to be bringing cows in. And I'm like, I have four cows. (sighs) I don't have anything to give you, but it has the spent grain has been huge. It's helped cut down hay costs. It has our cows look really the cows we're feeding it to look really, really good. So 2022 was spent putting a lot of things in motion to get our calves up to where they are now. They're still not finished and getting business things ready. So as of 2023, filed for the LLC, got all that taken care of. And now we are about to announce, um, People can put deposits on our steers and hopefully by October we have something to process. So that's where we are at now. Well, that's really exciting. You have to put in or have you put in ahead of time with the processor there for dates? Uh, Not yet. So our steers, excuse me, they're kind of a hodgepodge of different breeds. Um, So we don't really know what we're going to get. Um, so we're shooting for, excuse me, um, pretty soon here we will, excuse me again, um, put in with the processor, like our potential dates and 
hope that the boys grow and finish out by then. Very cool. Well, that'll be really exciting to see your first uh, harvest there of, of the steers. Mm-hmm. Good deal. Um, so you said you th- they rented a bull and then you bred the dairy cows initially, right? Mm-hmm. And then you kind of gone away. Like, did you retain any of those or how did that work as far as moving or continuing to grow your beef herd? Uh, it kind of happened naturally. Uh, just the older generations, we would eventually just butcher or we sold to other people. So it just kind of naturally happened that we kept breeding out the Holstein mm. influence. We have a couple now that have Holstein like several generations back. So that, yeah, not, not much there. Uh, we also had Highlands for a time and we are slowly breeding that out. We're almost there. And the reason we're breeding that out is because they are, Highlands are very slow. Mm -hmm. They are, they're very slow. I have no problem with anyone who wants to raise them, but thinking from the perspective of, okay, I want a higher turnover of beef animals i don't want to spend two years putting into them so that they finish out or longer so that was kind of that's been the reason we've been breeding those guys out too makes sense sense. they're cute but they slow they do i like pictures of them more than Mm -hmm. the actual animal and the horns are hard to deal with (laughs) yeah um well, I think we've covered a lot of ground here so far. Um, one thing I want to talk more about is how, to me, Alaska shows a lot of the weaknesses in the food supply chain, just naturally because of the environment. It's easier to see them there mm-hmm. than it is here. What do you think about the food security and food accessibility in Alaska and maybe kind of things we can watch in the lower 48 as warnings or things to learn from that? That's a really good question, too. Um, Something that Alaska as a whole has done is put all of their eggs into the oil and gas industry. That has been where all of our been our primary industry. I think with that being said, I think it's important to diversify and and kind of along with that, Alaskans as a whole are very independent, which I can which I can understand. Like you don't want to be reliant on other people. You don't want to be a leech to society. However, that doesn't that that doesn't help build community. And we can't do everything ourselves. I have weaknesses. Other people have weaknesses. And there's an opportunity there that we can, that really we can help one another. And that's definitely been something that's been lacking in Alaska and in Alaskan agriculture, especially. I mean, a lot of people came up here to get away from other people. So, but when you're talking about food security as a whole, you have to have that community. Mm -hmm. You have to have you have to have help and you have to be will and you have to be willing to let new people in to bring their ideas and not just stick to 
what's always what's always been like well you can't grow that here because well nobody else has well you don't know that until you try there's new technology i don't know if there's i don't know that there's necessarily something that the lower 48 should watch out for um i i'm missing a lot of knowledge on that part and maybe it's just because i'm very i'm hyper focused on alaska i i see a lot of strengths in other states you know texas if you go to the houston stock show they do a fantastic job of bringing the community in they other producers in and what or other like consumers in and really helping educate the consumers about what's going on and they make it fun um uh, gosh i'm trying to think about that i'm gonna i'm gonna come up with an answer after this podcast is over that's (laughs) no worries well maybe and phrasing it another way might trigger some thoughts what are some of the things that you think are the biggest concerns or that you guys are really focusing on trying to do differently in alaska right now I think one thing that me and a couple other cattle producers are trying to do is encourage support and encourage and, and encourage that community. Like, hey, if you don't want to go on Facebook and get skewered because oh you didn't know the answer to this question, uh, you can come to us. We will help you as best as we can. Um, Myself and the other cattle producers, like I said, we are starting an organization, the Alaska Livestock Producers Association, to build that community. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I get in trouble because I want to think, like, I think big and I want to go for, like, I want to do a Houston stock show in Alaska. We're not going to get to that level. We don't have enough people yet to get to that level so it's like okay Haley we gotta start small uh we gotta start with the person that has one cow we gotta start with okay this is how you get these are the basics and once you get those basics down then you can start okay well I can raise one cow let's raise two cows or three and then that's how we start to create an industry and it's kind of tough because the cattle industry down lower 48 it's already built they already have interest and it's been for over 100 years we're starting from scratch i i do have a lot of hope because there are a lot of new people getting involved who want cows they're getting into dairy they're getting into beef and they don't know what to do and google is great except you get you type in a question and you get millions of answers and it might not apply to Alaska. So I think, okay, kind of, to kind of to go back to your original question, I think something, and I know that this has been an issue that a lot of other podcasters have commented on. I know that um, Nat and Tara from the Discover Ag podcast have talked about this. I think Caroline Rose has talked about this. I think... Uh, maybe Dakota Don Johnson has, I'm not sure, but that, oh, Courtney Dioff has for sure, that the Western and ag industry tends to be closed off to new people coming in and new people who are interested. And on one hand, I can understand it. You know, you get people coming in, you know, thinking that they're going to come teach you how to do it and that 
the, uh, that closes people off. We've had that in Alaska a number of times. People come from the lower 48 and they look at agriculture here and they're like, well, you guys just aren't doing it right. And then inevitably they things don't work out. So I can understand that. I, I can understand the closed offness. In Alaska, being independent, people being very independent, you got kind of a double dose of that. So I, I guess the lesson to be learned here is make sure that we are open and willing to bring new people in and maybe give some people a little bit of grace when they come in with a bit of an attitude. Life usually kicks the attitude in the butt. (laughs) So just, yeah, being willing to let new people in and bring their ideas and say, okay, that's the way you're going about it isn't, may may not work but here's here's a way to workshop it a bit mm-hmm. does that make sense it does and i think that that's a really good point because community is definitely something that we say we don't have enough of in agriculture because we are very in a lot of ways isolated or rural you know on our own little siloed farm um but so much more community available here than to you in Alaska. Mm-hmm. Um, like you said, we have the infrastructure. We already have those organizations built and a lot of them with a long, rich history as well. Whereas you guys are kind of starting from scratch and really trying to help beginning farmers. It sounds like a lot of beginning farmers in the industry. Yeah. Well, I, like I said, I also do artificial insemination and I'm finding a new I'm getting new people filtering in and they've, they're brand new to AI, they're brand, like they don't know the process. They, they maybe have one cow, this is their first year doing it. And, and like with a lot of things, yes, there's bulls in Alaska, but it doesn't take long for the family tree to turn into a Christmas wreath. (laughs) So, but it's expensive to bring them up through Canada. Mm -hmm. So, AI has been opening up a lot of doors for people. But like I said, it's a lot of new people who they're brand new to cows completely and they're brand new to AI. And that's where we really have to start building. That's where we start building the infrastructure. And then eventually, hopefully, other things will start coming. Definitely. I also like what you said there about being welcoming and giving grace to people who are coming into the industry for the first time, because there are a lot of folks that are getting started. I think probably because of the huge culture shift we saw during COVID and everyone wanting to just have a little bit more self-reliance or options when other foods, other things in the food system aren't available, like we seen happen and i'm sure you guys saw so much more there yeah here um but so many of them are coming in without that background knowledge and i'm probably one of them um i grew up on a hobby farm and married someone who grew up with an ag background but to me there's a lot of things that i look at differently than somebody who's been in agriculture for a lot of years giving people the grace i think for that is what lets those new ideas come about. Like you said, not just saying, well, we can't do it that way because it's not never been done here. 
like, well, somebody might figure out a way to do it there and completely shift the ag industry in the state, just like other people have with random decisions at a dairy. Exactly. Uh, and yeah, and like, there's no reason to make people feel stupid. Mm-hmm. If, they, if they really are, uh, as, as I've come to see, like life typically teaches the really, truly arrogant people. They It usually teaches... You might not get it, but they typically don't go very far. So, and and you don't want to turn people off to it either. You know, you don't want people like, well, that person treated me like I was stupid. So, screw agriculture altogether. Yeah. Facebook is horrible about that. You ask one simple question and people skewer you. It's like, was that really necessary? And I think the kind of movement people are or not, I shouldn't say people, but a lot of folks are wanting to be more connected to their food. That can only benefit us. When Absolutely. people see the reasoning behind their production practices, why we do what we do, how we do what we do, like there's no no wrong in that as long as we keep the conversation flowing. It's when we yeah. see that the problems happen. Exactly. Um, I did think of one thing. One very positive thing about all of this is that we don't have to advocate for the beef industry or really any food industry. Like people, they don't really care if it's grass fed. They don't really care if it's organic. They they just they want the peace of mind that it is ethically raised. You know, we're not beating our cows to death or anything. And most people, they're not. Yeah. That is one very positive thing about Alaska is that everybody's pretty much on board. They're like, yep, let's let's do this. Let's the fact that it's in my hand is the most important part. <laughs> yeah, we've got the demand, just don't quite have the supply yet. Yeah. Well, it sounds like you're doing a lot of really cool things and I can't wait to check it back in maybe in a year or so. You can come back on the podcast and tell us about all the progress you guys have seen with your business and as the food system continues to develop there in Alaska. Well, thank you. I've really enjoyed being on here. I've really enjoyed talking to you and I'm I'm excited to see what comes next. Me too. Thank you so much, Haley. Thank you. Do you know someone building their ag legacy or with stories of yesteryear on the farm that need to be shared? Please let us know or help them apply to be a guest on the show at farmingonpurpose.com slash guest. If you've enjoyed spending time with us today, please take a moment to review the show on Apple Podcasts or give us a share on social media. You can follow the host of Farming on Purpose, Lexi, at, at Farming on Purpose on all social media. And let us know what topics you want to hear more about.